Hello, OnScript listeners. This is Matt Lynch. We're glad you tuned in. I hope you've poured yourself a bold cup of coffee because some of you biblically-oriented folk are about to get a dose of systematic theology in this episode, but from a theologian who reads the Bible. And those are the type that we gravitate toward and enjoy. This is part two of Matt Bates' foray into things systematic theological, and I think you'll enjoy the conversation. As a quick reminder, we'd appreciate it if you could let us know what you think of OnScript by going over to iTunes and giving us a favorable rating, if possible. But if you want to give a negative rating, you can send us a private Facebook message and we will file it you know where. Okay, without further ado, Matt Bates with Fred Sanders. In his book, The Trinity, renowned Catholic theologian Karl Rahner speaks about the deplorable state of Trinitarian theology in the 20th century. Rahner states, We must be willing to admit that, should the doctrine of the Trinity have to be dropped as false, the major part of religious literature could well remain virtually unchanged. Rahner was speaking about the manner in which the doctrine of the Trinity is treated in isolation from other doctrines, such as the Incarnation and Creation. Runner concludes that in the state of scholarship as we know it today, or in his era, we may know something about the Trinity in the sense that we affirm it to be a revealed truth, but that we ourselves have nothing to do with the mystery of the Holy Trinity. This is Matthew Bates, your OnScript host. At OnScript, we're always interested in the interface between biblical studies and theology. But in this episode, I'm continuing a mini-series for OnScript that engages systematics directly. I have Fred Sanders with me today, author of The Triune God, an absolutely outstanding new book on the Trinity published in Zondervan's series, New Studies in Dogmatics. I think it's safe to say that Fred's book more than overcomes the lack that Rahner lamented, as Fred very capably shows that the Trinity has everything to do with us and our salvation. Fred, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for joining us today. Now, what did you think of my opening quote from Rahner? Well, that's a classic lament that uh, Rahner wrote in his book, The Trinity. I think it's interesting. He was complaining about some particular mid-century Roman Catholic issues. I think everyone who quotes that lament sort of brings their own issues to it and projects their own uh, recent experience of Trinitarian dysfunction onto it. Yeah. I was deliberately messing with you a little bit there. Uh, in your book, you mentioned, you know, that uh, it seems that all books on the Trinity uh, start with a quote from Rahner, uh, from that section of Rahner in particular. So uh, I couldn't help uh, but, you know, poke you a little bit by uh, by uh, starting our interview uh, with that quote from Rahner. But there's there's some truth to it, I think, uh, that uh, and that's why everyone starts with it, right? That um, sometimes, at least, the doctrine of the Trinity uh, is this abstraction uh, that seems to be just information that has no real bearing on our immediate life. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there are probably two reasons everyone starts their books with that quote, even though I think everyone ought to stop doing that. Um, one is when you're starting a book, you're always looking to justify the existence of the book, and, and that complaint immediately justifies why you would need to write a book on the Trinity. <laughs> but the other one, I think, is he, he phrased everything so well that everyone can just sort of bring their own problems to it. I think Rahner was lamenting a kind of a dry, scholastic textbook theology that he learned from Jesuits. Um, and I'm always amused when American evangelicals love that quote and project onto it the kind of 
formless, untutored, uh, weak Trinitarianism that they're complaining about. They're two totally different kinds of Trinitarian dysfunction. But Rahner's lament is loosely phrased enough that everyone can find themselves in it. Yeah, I think that's true. Fred Sanders is a professor at Biola University and the Tory Honors Institute. With Oliver Crisp, he also co-convenes the Los Angeles Theology Conference, which I think is happening very, very soon, at least at the time of our recording. Now, Fred, uh, opening question for you. Uh, you're stuck on a desert island for 10 years. It's just you. Coconuts. And three theology books. You only get three. Uh, none of which can be the Bible, because that's too obvious. I can't make this too easy for you. Now, Fred, if you choose wrong, you might go mad. Uh, what with the loneliness of being on the island, the malnutrition from having only coconuts. What are your three books, your three theology books you're going to bring with you? Oh, man. Uh, so I'm trying to observe the rules here. Can I can I choose very large books, like with the Summa Theologia count as <laughs> one book? Absolutely. You can choose, you can choose large books. Yeah. So it's the Summa? Um, yeah, I'd probably go with the Summa, Calvin's Institutes, and um, boy, I don't know. I, I might I might choose Bob Inc. right now um, uh-huh. just because I haven't finished reading it. Well, and that's so, long. I mean, you, you get like four volumes, yeah. right, with him. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, so you, you did kind of cheat by choosing huge books. So I don't know. I, I, I didn't give you parameters. So uh, uh, that will definitely give you a lot to read. It might actually you know take until you were rescued for you to finish all those anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I'd have to choose which ones to leave behind when they came to pick me up. Yes. Yeah, they wouldn't be able to haul those back on an airplane. They're too big. <laughs> All right. Well, Fred, this isn't your first this isn't your first venture into Trinitarian theology. You've, you've written extensively on the topic already, um, especially your the deep things of God. So how is this book different from the others? Yeah. Um, so Deep Things of God is probably the, the main thing that I've written uh, in my life. And it's uh, written at the popular level to engage evangelicals uh, and get them sort of connected doctrinally and spiritually um, to the Trinity. Before that, I wrote my dissertation um, at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, which later came out as a book, uh, The Image of the Imminent Trinity on Rahner's Rule. Um, that, that was very academic. Uh, in tone. And so I've written sort of uh, a high-end book and a low-end book. Um, the Triune God is somewhere in the middle, I'd say, uh, tending towards the, the, the high end. It's, it's a fairly academic book. Um, and it's, it's sort of my continuing effort to really lean into the biblical aspect of systematic theology. Um, I keep talking a lot about the Bible and uh, not actually doing a whole lot of exegesis. So the Triune God is me at least trying to uh, retool and, and gear up the best I can to take seriously the, the biblical, exegetical aspect of doing the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, good. I think your description of it as a, a higher-end academic piece is correct. And in fact, when you first had described the project to me, um, this was maybe an email correspondence that we had uh, a year or two ago, and you'd mentioned that you were you were working on this modest project, as you had described it, you know, on uh, kind of Trinity and the Bible. And uh, and so I think whenever I approached the book, uh, I, I was expecting something different. I wasn't expecting such a sophisticated dogmatic proposal. Uh, but I want to commend you. It very much is a sophisticated dogmatic proposal. And and uh, I appreciate, um, you know, how that uh, folds into conversations about the Bible. I think you do do an admirable job uh, on both fronts. So congratulations. No, thank you. You know, when I was uh, probably when we were emailing, I think I was working at Tyndale House in Cambridge at the time. And 
it was great to be working on a systematic theological project, a dogmatic project, uh, surrounded by Bible scholars. Uh, you know, we'd come out for tea time to talk about our work, and uh, I'd meet some interesting uh, biblical scholar who would say, I'd ask, what are you working on? And, and he would say something like, you know the phrase obedience of faith in, in Paul? I say, yeah, I know that phrase in Romans a couple times. And they'd say, well, I'm working on the of there. You know, what's, what is what is that genitive? And I'd say, oh, wow, that's that's fascinating. Then they'd say, what are you working on? I'd say, the Trinity. <laughs> and there would be this awkward pause. It, it wasn't so much the difference between our disciplines, as, uh, though it was partly that. It was the scope of it. It, was, it didn't even sound to a Bible scholar like I had made a statement of a field or a claim. You know, it's just it's just too too vast. Yes, um, I think that you've laid your finger on uh, some troubling differences sometimes between our fields, and I, I I think I got a little bit of that reaction from some people as I was working on my book on the Trinity as well. Um, as it's uh, it's it's a, again it's it seems overly ambitious to try to say anything new about the Trinity, and probably it is. Uh, but nevertheless, we have to keep making our probes uh, and our attempts to try to understand um, our great Triune God. Now, here's a question then um, th- th- to kind of think through a little bit of how this book emerged from your own story um, what do you what do you think it is about the t- doctrine of the Trinity then that has so grabbed a hold of you you keep writing on it uh, how does this emerge from your own context um, I, so for me I think my, my life message the thing I keep coming back to in different ways in my academic work and in my pastoral work is the connection of the Trinity to the gospel um, which I think at this point I would describe as the way in which God's revelation of the way of salvation makes something known about God, um, that, that, that we know that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because for our salvation, the Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, that the economy, I, I guess I could say more technically, that the economy of salvation is also inherently an economy of revelation in which God makes known his character. Yeah, that's very well put. Now, next question is going to kind of piggyback on that and um, probe the structure of your book as a whole. As I think that in this work as a whole, the way that you've sequenced your material is very important. At least that was my perception, very important to the overall message you're going to communicate in the book uh, as you're very concerned with rightly ordering our speech about God. Um, so... What is the right ordering, uh, and how is it the development of your book's own logic a reflection of that right ordering? So I'm trying to develop the, a doctrine of the Trinity, um, and it, let's, this sound like I'm some kind of mad scientist working on a brand new thing. It's a very traditional doctrine of the Trinity, a very classical lines, I would say. Um, but I want to develop it in a way that it's clear for us in our time that it's following the the way it was revealed. I think too often we sort of get the doctrine of the Trinity from Scripture, and then set about figuring out how to organize it in a way that we think might be pedagogically helpful. Uh, whereas for at least this project, I wanted to rehearse in the form of the book uh, the manner of the Trinity's revelation, um, not historically speaking, but um, uh, sort of substantively speaking. So uh, that, that means a little bit of uh, time has to be spent early on on the nature of revelation, um, that's where the book's in danger of staying very methodological for, for quite a while. But then after that, it jumps right into the fact that we know God is Father, Son, and Spirit because of the salvation historical missions, that is, the sending of the Son and the Spirit into salvation history. So I start there with the um, incarnation and Pentecost, would be shorthand, the coming of the Son and the Spirit. 
um, rather than, for instance, on page one of the Bible and then read it left to right uh, to follow that out. Instead, I want to go with the, the certain knowledge that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because of the Father's sending of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and then and then you move from there into um, I guess uh, both the new covenant and the old covenant, and you have um, some things to say about um, some differences between uh, the way in which God has revealed Himself in the old and the new. And I think we'll get to that later on uh, as we continue into the interview. Um, well, one of the questions that I would have, um, I guess, as I as I think about this business of rightly ordering our speech about God, and, and I think you're absolutely on target. We do need to do this. But on the other hand, what if I was uh, a real narcissist? And, uh, you know, I may or may not be one. Um, and uh, because I'm... I'm particularly interested in uh, the use of uh, uh, the Old Testament and how that might connect to the Trinity. And let's just say I wanted to begin there because, well, I'm a narcissist. Um, what would be the problem with that? Why would that be disordered to begin there? Yeah, yeah, let me, uh, I, can, I can talk about that. I do want to say I just read a book uh, this week that follows the older order, which is it starts with the Old Testament and works its way through. And it did a fine job. It's a Carl Beckwith's book, The Holy Trinity, and the Lutheran Dogmatic Confession series. Um, it's just it's just fine. Um, I'm not trying to establish new rules for how all subsequent books on the Trinity must be written. This is not a prolegomena to all future Trinity books. Um, but th- here's the reason I wrote it the way I did, and the reason I wanted to put off treatment of the Old Testament. Number one is just a practical, <clears throat> almost apologetic kind of issue. Um, in my opinion, the the triunity of God is not clearly made known, that is, revealed successfully, until the coming of the Son and the Spirit. Um, therefore, in terms of putting your best foot forward and making a persuasive case that really gets everybody on board and, and gets them to, you know, something solid that they can build on, um, I don't think you want to start with the Old Testament, where you find yourself sort of poking around in divine plurals and uh, messengers of the covenant and and all kinds of, um, well, I don't know, uh, prosoponic readings that that have a lot of uh, uh, complexity and even ambiguity around them. I think all that stuff's uh, valuable and important to make part of the synthesis. I just find that if you start that way, if your listener is skeptical at all, they're going to be saying, really, You're, you're looking at the form of the word Elohim and somehow with a trinity decoder ring finding trinitarian (laughs) stuff in there (laughs) yeah Um, that's great so in this case to put that stuff off as long as possible uh, in specifically in order to reap the best evidential value from it i think lots of things have to be in place before that old testament material is meaningful but at the same time, right, you don't want to uh, – and, and you don't in your project. You want to still integrate the Old Testament uh, and say that nevertheless, we have to include this in our Trinitarian synthesis. It might have been easier to just say, well, well we're just going to we're just going to keep the New Testament material, right, uh, as it's clear there or whatever. Why do you think then that we have to keep the Old Testament material? Yeah, we have to keep the Old Testament material because the New Testament material um, doesn't actually properly make sense without it. Um, I think I quote repeatedly Kevin Rowe's line that you don't get the doctrine of the Trinity from one testament or the other by itself. It's got to be, I think Kevin's point is, it's got to be the um, metaphysical pressure exerted by Old Testament presuppositions um, that causes the revelation in the New Testament to demand Trinitarian formulation. 
Um, if it weren't for that, you know, for things like the obvious um, monotheism of the Old Testament, if we use that term, um, then the fact that the Father sent the Son um, could be construed lots of ways if it weren't for the sort of uh, metaphysical pressure from the Old Testament. And, and of course, um, my, my view of the Old Testament, which my Old Testament scholar friends refer to as most of the Bible, <laughs> my, my view of the Old Testament is that um, it, it's really what makes sense uh, and gives you orientation for the whole New Testament. I, I forget who said that the New Testament is really the first Old Testament theology. Uh, you know, it's just a, um, you take the Old Testament, add Jesus, and then uh, discuss, and, and that's pretty much what generates the text of the New Testament. Yeah, another thing that I think um, that you bring up and others have brought up as well is that we always have to bear in mind, right, that God didn't start being Trinity, you know, whenever uh, the New Testament arose historically, right, that God has always been triune. And so it would certainly seem to make sense that uh, once we find God revealing himself as the triune God uh, with the sending of the Son and the sending of the Spirit. Uh, and we see that attested in the New Testament that we should be able to kind of look backwards at the old and uh, and see that, uh, indeed, God is triune, even there. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I probably should have said that first. Um, maybe that's one of the things I would mean by the pressure from the Old Testament is uh, if the Father sends the Son and the Holy Spirit, then you could think, uh, oh, I guess God changed, and suddenly the, fa- the God is a father who has a son. Well, that's an interesting event in the divine life as he keeps changing. Um, well, no, the Old Testament, the pressure of the Old Testament is going to keep you from saying that and instead lead you to say, if the father sent the son, the father must always have had a son. Now, Fred, in, um, in chapter 1, uh, you are working, uh, before you get to uh, the topic of Revelation, which which really occupies at least chapter 2, but maybe chapter 3 as well. In chapter 1, you're, you're especially working on uh, doxology or praise. Um, and uh, it's interesting that you start the book there, uh, and um, you, you do make this claim here, uh, or this assertion, uh, on uh, page 27, 28. You say this, it's just brief. Theology is not itself if it is not also praise. It is not itself if it is not also praise. I, I found that striking. Um, and so do you think it's possible for you know, somebody who's just uh, a disinterested um, theologian, uh, but perhaps uh, one that uh, we might argue could be a good one to describe God and to describe ourselves accurately, uh, but uh, this person never wants to bring it to the level of doxology. Uh, could we could we ever call this person uh, a good theologian, or is, is there something fundamental lacking, or is or have I kind of um, given you an impossible description, sort of like a circle <laughs> square, uh, uh, in suggesting that someone could be a good theologian and uh, and describe God and humanity accurately, but not bring it to the level of doxology? What do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Um... So I think about that person, uh, and then I also think about myself writing theology on any given work day where I'm not um, feeling especially, you know, doxological, where the, where the work I'm doing, uh, I'm not affectively or subjectively entering into kind of a worshipful mode. There are times when you've just, you've got eight books spread out in front of you, and you're doing the hard, serious, gray work of, um, you know, connecting the dots and, and doing some scholarship. Um, I don't mean to suggest that I've got praise music playing and that I'm sort of, you know, uh, singing hymns with the angels as I compose sentences. Um, but I will say that either when I'm writing in a way where I'm not subjectively attuned to the aspect of praise in Christian theology, or when someone's writing who is, um, you know, long-term not engaged with the Christian, you know, what would we say, the liturgical life or the, the spiritual life, um, 
I think what we're doing is we're writing at a remove from the sort of the red hot core content of what Christian theology is. Um, biblical knowledge of God is necessarily connected to a human response to divine initiative. And uh, a human verbal response to divine initiative or revelation um, is going to have the it's, it's going to be a form of praise. Um, I, I think I, I probably think that about Trin- theology in general. I discovered it while working on Trinitarian theology in this mode that I'm working on it in, where I think the Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit. God did the biggest thing God ever did, which is the incarnation and Pentecost, as this one activity. Um, and then we respond to that by by saying back to God what we believe He has done and revealed in those actions. Um, that's the the that's the form of Trinitarianism that I find in all the classic texts. Now, kind of uh, moving on to chapter two in your book, you talk about the Trinity as a revealed dogma, um, and uh, especially about how words and deeds properly interface uh, with this revealed dogma. What happens if we are to uh, get lopsided in our approach to the Trinity, and we were to, let's just say, emphasize only God's revealed words, uh, because maybe that's the the Protestant persuasion uh, would be to you know say what's well, all in, it's all about Scripture, right? Um, what what happens when we become imbalanced in that sense, and we don't counterpose that by emphasizing deeds? Yeah, I think um, I think that is possible, and I, I think it has happened in various treatments of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, it yields a kind of a brittle. Trinitarianism, um, it, it can give the impression that triunity is something odd that is true of God, that at some point he decided to make known to us as propositional revelation, as a, uh, as a truth about himself that for whatever reason he kept secret for a while, but then when a timer went off, he decided now it was time to make it known. And so, you know, he leaned over the ramparts of heaven and verbally informed us that this thing about him was true. If that's the case, and a lot of people handle the Trinity something like that, I think, um, th- then it leaves us as theologians or as Christians with the the task of figuring out why God would reveal such a thing. You know, and I, I you could use the parallel. Uh, it's as if God at some point decided to inform us that he was both blue and invisible. Uh, and then, you know, well, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I guess now my task is to figure out what it could possibly mean that you're blue and invisible and why that would matter, why that you would make that known. Um, I just think that's um, that's an abstraction from what really happened. What actually happened is, in the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son, and it's really at the point of the sending of the Son that God makes it clear that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, there's not some kind of a clear setup, which is, you know, A, I have a son, and one of these days you'll know why that matters. B, by the way, here's my son. Um, you know, it really is, this is the beloved son, listen to him. Yeah. So the deed the deed has a certain kind of priority, it would seem, in terms of the sending of the son and the spirit, but that we, we couldn't interpret, they're not self-interpreting apart from words that are inescapably caught up uh, with understanding who this son and who this spirit is that has been sent. Yeah, yeah. When I distinguish uh, uh, event and interpretive word, I distinguish them in order to unify them. Um, there, you know, there was a mid-century movement of Christian thought that also tried to get it done in a lopsided way by only working with the event of the sending of the Son, um, as if we didn't have interpretive words uh, to guide us in what that meant. 
Yeah, I, I appreciated your interaction with Dei Verbum, a, a Catholic document and, uh, that was issued by Vatican II, that uh, it would seem that you you think that Vatican II uh, and Dei Verbum more or less got that right. Uh, and uh, that's something that I, I, I personally have found a fairly convincing treatment of divine revelation also. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's right. I've learned a lot from uh, that, that handling of things in that section of Dei Verbum from Vatican II. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, Fred, I'm uh, switching the topics on you a little bit here, um, although this does uh, connect to a, an issue you raised either in Chapter 2 or Chapter 3, uh, and that's that I've met a few people, and I'm, I'm sure you've met a few people like this too, uh, who when you start talking about the Trinity, they want to uh, to silence you uh, with some clever words. Uh, uh, they, they say something along, along the lines of this, well, that's nice, Fred, um, I'm glad that you're excited about the it, eternal generation of the Son, and that you're excited about the pr- pr- procession of the Spirit and about God's threeness and his oneness, but but this is all just mysterious. Uh, and uh, it's just wonderful that God has given us this mystery, uh, and it's okay that I don't understand it because it's all just a mystery. Uh, how do you respond to uh, that person who 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 wants to close off conversation in, uh, in the face of this awe-inspiring mystery? Yeah. Yeah, uh, that is a, an interesting strategy, I guess, that people use a lot. Um, the, the point that I make is that um, the, this is something that God has made known about himself. Now, we're not expecting total, absolute comprehension of everything about it um, any more than we're expecting that about anything with regard to God. Um, but what we're dealing with in the Father sending the Son and the Spirit is that God wanted us to know something about himself. And so the task of thinking about the Trinity is to to know what God wanted us to know. It's just just to clarify that, you know, that's the task. We're not going to know everything about God, but he made this known for a reason, and we're going to figure that out. Um, I think it's fine to humbly submit and bow the knee and say that uh, we can't comprehend everything about God. I also think that we could have that response to any doctrine of anything about God. So, you know, if God reveals that he is omniscient or omnipresent, we could also say, Yes, here is a kind of mystery where we can't, in fact, exhaustively know everything about God's relationship to time or space or knowledge. Um, yep, that is an aspect of the knowledge of God which we could talk about meaningfully in any doctrine. Um, if I could put this sort of in terms of jealousy about my own proprietary favorite doctrine, what I want to say is something like, why would you only make that point about the incomprehensibility of God here in the doctrine of the Trinity? Why aren't you making that point in every doctrine? Um, when once you've made that point, let's then move on to the special content of the doctrine of the Trinity and understand what is to be known about it. I guess the other move I would make is, and I do this in the book, is to affirm that mystery is the right word to use when talking about the Trinity, um, but we should use the word mystery in a biblical sense. And as you know, in, in the Bible, the word mystery has a historical structure. It's something that has always been true, was not all was not previously made known, but now has been made known. I think Paul, especially drawing on the usage of Daniel, um, develops that historical sense of the word mystery. And the Trinity is yes, that kind of mystery, always true, was not made known in ages past, but now in these times has been made known. I thought that second point you made is especially a helpful one in the book. The idea that. Um, of of mystery being connected to a revelation of a pre-existing truth, uh, mm. and um, and that that's uh, uh, 
part of the reason why we're justified in probing into these mysteries is because, yes, they weren't known, but now they are, right? Uh, at least to a degree, not that we know them mm-hmm. exhaustively, like you say, but now that they are known so that we are licensed uh, and indeed encouraged and demanded by the gospel itself uh, to probe into the mystery of the Trinity. Yeah, I think somewhere uh, in one of his commentaries, Calvin says, when you hear the word mystery, uh, that's not a signal for you to stop thinking, but for you to wake up and pay closer attention. Yeah. Yes, very good. Um, now, you you opened, uh, I opened with a quote from Rahner uh, about the deplorable state of Trinitarian theology in, in the day and age in which Rahner found himself. And, you know, Rahner himself obviously made enormous contributions to the doctrine of the Trinity, especially with his very famous uh, Rahner's Rule. Uh, and Rahner's Rule is the, the economic Trinity is the eminent Trinity and vice versa. So uh, Rahner's Rule has uh, been something like a, a touch point uh, in contemporary theology. Um, one of the things that interested me was your critique of Rahner's rule, and uh, obviously uh, this is something that you probably could talk about for days and days and days since it was your dissertation topic. Um, but I wanted uh, to hear a little bit more from you about what you think the limitations are on Rahner's rule. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see if I can try to keep this short. I do keep coming back to Rahner's rule. It's a fascinating phrase, and, and my my dissertation was basically almost a journalistic response to what has everybody said about this? Because there are thousands of pages of reaction and commentary and use of this phrase, the economic trinity is the imminent trinity and vice versa. Um, I, I guess one thing I want to say is that it. we talked earlier about Revelation. And if you compare Rahner's view of Revelation to the actual finished form of Vatican II's Dei Verbum with a, a more balanced view of Revelation, Runner really does overemphasize revelation through um, events. And if you think about downplaying verbal revelation and upplaying revelation through events or through, um, you know, the transcendental realities that are behind the events, Runner's got a thick philosophy there. Um, you would, in fact, find yourself saying something like, what God does in history in sending the, uh, the Father, sending the Son and the Spirit just is who God is in eternity and vice versa. That, that's the kind of thing you would say if you were operating without the guidance of verbal propositional revelation. Now, yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to try to run my whole engine on nothing but verbal propositional revelation, but I also don't want to pretend that I figured out the doctrine of the Trinity just from sort of sign language or, um, uh, pantomime. So it seems that your critique of Rahner's rule, then, a lot of it has to do not with the rule in and of itself, but um, what you know about how Rahner derives a rule and what you are pretty confident he intended with the rule, right? As uh, that is, then, uh, when it says the economic trinity is the eminent trinity and vice versa, that is word for Rahner seemed like it was restricted to deeds. Yeah, I think that's right. And so, yep. Yep, and that's what leads to certain takes on the vice versa. Yves Congar early pointed out that the vice versa is a big part of the problem. If the being of God in himself, the imminent trinity, just is the economic trinity, that, uh, that that's kind of odd. Um, and I think Walter Casper early pointed out, these are just the Catholic uh, critiques of the Catholic theologian Rahner. Casper pointed out that Rahner really didn't know what to do with the baptismal command, Matthew 28, 20, um, where the risen Lord says the phrase, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, Casper comes back to that and says, 
yeah, if the Lord had not said that phrase, we would have been sort of rooting around in the events of the New Testament trying to figure out what they signified. Yes, so there's sort of a verbal guidance given even there in that Matthew 28 quote then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, if I if, if this is accurate, I'd, I'd want to say that it seems at the heart of your proposal um, is that the Trinity is revealed in the two missions, uh, the Father sending the Son, the Incarnation, right, and the Holy Spirit uh, being sent at Pentecost, uh, and uh, but that you want to say something more about the uh, how this connects to the eternal life of God is you want to say that these mention these missions then are themselves extensions or attenuations of the eternal relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that have always existed. Um, like, so, so one question is: Is this an accurate summary? Is there any way that you want to develop that uh, and uh, or clarify uh, if that is the heart of your book? Uh, maybe you have more to say. Yeah, I think that's the heart. And so the um, the phrase probably best stated in Thomas Aquinas uh, that missions reveal processions. That, that when we see the um, the Son being sent by the Father, we could ask ourselves uh, the question: How does an equal send an equal? Normally, when someone sends uh, an emissary, uh, the superior sends the inferior and has a sort of commanding authority uh, over that. Uh, inferior or subordinate person. But in this case, uh, Jesus is fully God, uh, is the presence of God among us. But we can't just say he's the presence of God among us. That would make it sound like merely that God is with us, as opposed to what the New Testament leads us to say, which is God sent God, or to put the Trinitarian grammar in, the Father sent the Son. Um, What does that make known about who God eternally is? Well, you could do that with the revealed metaphor language of Father and Son, Uh, The Father is eternally Father of the Son. Um, But you could also just do it by reflecting on the sending or the sentness and say, the Son is among us as from the Father, because in himself, in eternity, he is from the Father, but in another sense. What is that sense? Well, among us, it's sending, but in God himself, it's procession. It's an internal going forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, one kind of sticky wicket to deal with in light of that is, of course, the Filioque controversy, you know, that uh, in uh, uh, the original form of the Nicene, Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, uh, we have the uh, spirit uh, uh, being spirated forth then from the Father, but that in the Latin tradition, subsequently in the 5th century or whatever it might be, uh, we have the addition of those words and the Son, Filioque in Latin. Uh, and so controversy erupted over whether or not the Spirit was sent from the Father only or from the Father and the Son, or how to qualify all that. One of the things I notice is that uh, you kind of sidestep all that in your book. Uh, uh, I, I suspect that was deliberate to try to make the book a little more ecumenical, uh, but I wanted to press you a little bit and uh, to see uh, if we were to probe the filioque, um, or if you were to probe it in the bounds of this book, do you have any ideas of where you might have gone uh, with your conversation? Yeah. Yeah, you're right that I sidestep it, and you're right that I do that um, for ecumenical reasons. Um, Not just because I want people who don't affirm the Filioque to be able to use and profit from this book, um, though that is the case, Um, but because that judgment is itself built on uh, the fact that I think there's substantial agreement, East and West, Filioque and and, uh, non-Filioque or monopatrist, uh, about the missions revealing the processions. Now, you know, there is, of course, this further detail of 
what precise procession of the third person does the mission of the third person uh, reveal. Um, and I think, I think that's a meaningful discussion to have, and I have a view of that that I am glad to state. Um, but my major point is, if we could just get missions reveal processions back in place as a guide to biblical interpretation, uh, that would deliver us from the brittleness of so much Trinitarianism uh, that we experience these days. Um, also, I think there's been uh, a, a lot, there's been too much press given to the difference between Eastern and Western Trinitarianism. Um, I think there's such a thing as the Christian doctrine of the Trinity that spans East and West, and so I'm trying in this book to sort of perform that classic doctrine of the Trinity that's Latin and Greek, East and West, you know, all sorts of different geographical centers. Yeah. So but on the filioque. <laughs> oh, yeah, go, go ahead. Go ahead, yes. Yeah, yeah I do affirm the filioque. Um, uh, and, um, well, you know, maybe, actually, maybe that's it. Maybe that's all I need to say. Okay. Um, my, my diagrams, when I'm sort of trying to make draw little diagrams to help sort this out, I admit my diagrams tend to be equilateral triangles without special sort of bracket marks to indicate that the spirit comes from the Father and from the Son as from one unique source in the Western uh, uh, language. Um, and that's because all I really want to get at, all I need for my project, is that the spirit is from the Father. So I tend to draw these kind of two parallel processions that aren't each other. So the processions reveal the missions, but then whenever you're talking about the... Um the, the way the processions work, you're going to want to include the Son and the sending of the Spirit, then, is the bottom line. Well, yeah, certainly the, the sending of the Spirit. Um, I think everyone would agree the Spirit is sent into the economy by the Father and the Son. Yeah, and so the, the question would be whether yeah, we want to use that language and the Son or through the Son or how, how to nuance all that you know, between the East and the West. Um, yeah. Well, very good, very good. Um, all right, well, that, that was helpful, I think, uh, for me to see where you, would, where you would go with that if you, if you were going to take up the, uh, the Filioque discussion. Yeah, oh, and I should also um, say um, I think it's kind of rude to interpolate a phrase into an ecumenical creed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So if it were... If it were a matter, the procedural matter of should that phrase have been uh, added and then after being added be defended uh, as an addition from one side, I, yeah, I think that, that seems canonically irregular. Well, that's good. You, you just probably yeah. saved yourself, uh, you know, a hundred angry emails from Orthodox <laughs> Orthodox friends who you know happen to listen in, you know, who were, were about to be hacked off and send an angry email. So nice clarification. Um, yeah. Now. You know, one of the, uh, the the parts that I thought uh, was interesting was your 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 conversation about Gregory of Nazianzus on what what you called syllable syllable mongering, uh, and uh, the difference between sound and sense, and uh, this uh, in in connection to uh, perhaps if we would maybe make a theoretical um, you know. Uh, construction here that you might have somebody uh, who would be a critic of the doctrine of the Trinity who would come along and say, well, you know, you know, the Trinity is not really in the Bible, Fred. Um, I'm sorry, it's just not there. Um, and uh, and uh, you had, I think, a nice response to that where you, you used uh, some patristic sources uh, to uh, to give a, a fitting answer. Uh, could you tell us about that analogy that you used about uh, or that uh, the material you drew on from Gregory of Nazianzus? Yeah, yeah, and uh, th you know this this matters to me a lot. It'd be easy to dismiss these critics because they often put their point of views in such such um, sort of you know truculent ways that you you kind of want to blow them off. But 
it really does matter to me that in one sense I don't want to do theology that goes beyond the Bible, uh, you know, in the sense of finding new material that we supplement the Bible with. Um, but in another sense, I, I, you know, I want to get further into the Bible in a way that uh, I'm glad to call sort of speculative or adds insight that's not there verbatim in the text of Scripture. And so Nazianzus dealt with this in the five theological orations. Um, one of the illustrations that he uses, I think, is if, if the Bible says two and three, is it legitimate, is it warranted for us to say that what it just taught was five? Um, or do we have to stay at the level of the syllables and say it doesn't say five, it just says two and three? Um, I think that's a really helpful illustration. Um, I, I think there's something really narrow-minded and merely verbalistic about saying we must only ever affirm two and three. We must never go on to synthesize the five from what Scripture says. Um, and I also think the fact that it's using numbers is interesting because the word Trinity in English sounds to us very technical, precise. It sounds mathematical. Maybe it sounds Catholic. I don't know what it sounds like. Um, but, but tracing it back and trying to find the first use of the English word Trinity, you end up back in Anglo-Saxon land with the word, I don't know any Anglo-Saxon, but the word looks to me like Threnes, something like T-H-R-Y-N-N-Y-S-S-E. Well, yeah, it's so obviously threeness when you see it in Anglo-Saxon that you think, wow, what if what if you and I, Matthew, were having this whole conversation right now, and instead of saying Trinity, we'd been talking about the threeness? It would, yeah, I think we would all agree. There's threeness in the Bible. You know, there's threeness with regard to God in the Bible. The question is, what's the nature of that threeness? Oh yeah, well now we have to have a discussion. When I look at Matthew 28 and the Lord says, "Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit." There's threeness right there. And if I were talking Latin, I'd say there is a trinitas. Hoc uh, est trinitas or something like that. Yeah, so sort of the point <laughs> is, the point then is that one plus one plus one equals three. And so the trinity is in the Bible. And so that if you were, you know, to just uh, be overly restrictive about um, about syllables uh, rather than thinking about the sense of the syllables, right, then we err, uh, as uh, as, uh, I think you very eloquently pointed out. I like that analogy a lot. I thought it was helpful. I'm going to steal that and use it in my teaching. (laughs) So uh, I appreciate that. I do think it's still valuable when someone says, is the Trinity in the Bible, to clear the ground by saying, if you're asking me a concordance question, then no, that word's not going to be found there. But I assume you're asking something more interesting that's going to take a little more study. Um, So... One of the things that uh, that I was uh, wanting to hear you speak a little bit more about, as I think it's really important for what your project is trying to do as a whole, and that is um, in your final chapter, you talk about how uh, the doctrine of the Trinity and its revealed the revealed nature of the doctrine of the Trinity and the revealed nature of the gospel that those happen together and are bundled together. Um, and so one of the things that I think that this leads to as a corollary then, if we were to kind of unpack your ideas, is that if somebody was to compromise the doctrine of the Trinity, they've actually compromised the gospel itself. Uh, there might be a tendency in some quarters to say, well, the gospel has a primacy over the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity develops later. Uh, it's more speculative. We don't really get there till the fourth century. Uh, but you're making a pretty strong claim saying that uh, if, in fact, we were to lose the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, well, then we've, in fact, damaged the gospel irreparably. At least that's what it would seem to me. Um, why is that the case? Yeah, I think that's the case because the the nature of the biblical God, the character of the biblical God, um, is built into the nature of Christian salvation. 
So you could talk about all kinds of salvations, uh, theoretically, uh, that would not entail Trinitarianism. Uh, you know, I think built into early Christological thought, it, it's not just a matter of finding verses that demonstrate that Jesus is God and then winning the fight at the Battle of Nicaea. Oh, at the uh, <laughs> Council of Nicaea. Called it a battle there, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, well, um, it's, it's correct. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. um, the logic of pro-Nicene theology was always um, built on a presupposition about the nature of Christian salvation, that our problem with God is personal, and therefore uh, only God personally involved in uh, the coming of the Son of God could solve the problem for us. You know, if you had some other definition of salvation, like um, we are oppressed by demons, therefore salvation is for a big angel to beat up the demons. Okay, well, then you could have a Christology where a big angel came and beat up the demons. Um, but if instead you have a more precise and determinate understanding of what Christian salvation is, uh, you're going to have uh, necessarily built into it an understanding of who God is. So, I mean, the, the most transparent version of that is if salvation is adoption by God the Father through the work of the incarnate Son to become by grace what he is by nature, well, obviously, you can only do that on a Trinitarian platform. Otherwise, salvation is adoption either doesn't make any sense or makes a different kind of sense. Yeah. Yeah, it would also cut off the, um, I guess, if we were to have a narrow, an overly narrow view of what the gospel is, one that, for instance, excluded incarnation uh, and excluded enthronement and excluded the idea of, you know, whenever Jesus died for our sins, that this is predicated on union with the Spirit. Um, if we have kind of overly narrow views of what the gospel is, if we reduce it down to the phrase, Jesus died for my sins, or something like that, well, then um, we might be able to, um, at least it might be possible to not see the full Trinitarian structure of what's going on in the gospel. Uh, but whenever we begin to unpack the statement, Jesus, the Christ, died for my sins, and we even think about, you know, uh, how the word Christ implicates Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, mm-hmm. then, uh, then then I think you're right. It's inescapable that we have to see that the doctrine of the Trinity is bound up with uh, the gospel. So I thought that was a real strength of your book. Um, and and I, I, don't, I can't say that in a lot of other books that I've read on the Trinity uh, that I have seen that fronted at least in, in quite the same way that you fronted it in in um in your book so i thought that was a fine achievement from from your book so congratulations oh, on that, that yeah too. well that's always my gamble is that deeper into the gospel is going to entail deeper into the trinity yeah well uh time is moving along here um there's lots of other things that we could talk about i think that we we've we've done a fair bit um one of the questions that i wanted to make sure we get to because we've been asking this to all of our guests it's a sort of a fun wrap-up question uh, and it's this, uh, what is the one idea in the field of New Testament studies or Christian origins that needs to die? The one idea in the field of New Testament or Christian origins that needs to die. Now, you're outside of the field proper, right? You're a dogmatician. Mm-hmm. But as you look across the aisle then at New Testament and Christian origins, what's something you say? That just seems like such a bad idea that uh, if scholarship <laughs> would, just, would just depart from that idea, I think we'd be in a lot saner place. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, boy, speaking as kind of an outsider, technically, um, so I, I know this is fraught. I know there are a lot of levels to it, but uh, de- developmental Christology, uh-huh. uh, the, the sort of starting low and earning your way to high, Yes. Um, boy, that's that's been a problem. I Some of the first really high-quality, rigorous New Testament scholarship that I interacted with theologically was James Dunn. 
And so, you know, grateful, learned so much, really built some muscles on that work. Uh, but it took me a long time to kind of get my head out of that developmental paradigm um, that I think was really blocking my ability to read the New Testament well. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You're not the first person who's answered in that direction uh, with de okay. developmental Christology. I believe Richard Hayes, in fact, when we did our interview with him, uh, mm. highlighted developmental Christology. Uh, this is something that's near to my own heart, as I have a, a keen interest not just in the doctrine of the Trinity, but in Christological origins as well. So mm. um, so I, I think that uh, that's interesting that that's the thing you identified looking across the aisle as a systematician. So mm. th thank you very much. Yeah. Well... Fred, it's been a great conversation. We've, we've really appreciated you taking the time to uh, introduce us to your book a little bit more and your work and have a fine conversation about the Doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, well, it's been great to be here. Good to talk to you, Matt. This is Matthew Bates for OnScript. Fred Sanders has been our guest today. Our conversation has revolved around Fred's terrific new book, The Triune God, still hot off the press from Zondervan. There's a link to Fred's book on our website, OnScript.study. If you've been enjoying these podcasts, we'd appreciate it if you take the time to share OnScript on Facebook or Twitter, or if you'd review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for joining us today. You've been listening to OnScript. Conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Mm -hmm.